When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Michael Cunningham, author of the novel Day. The person who wrote the book is often not the final authority on the book. That's why there are readers and academics and critics and all kinds of people who on a semi-regular basis sort of point out things in your own book that you I think must have been aware of unconsciously, but but we're not actually thinking about. We'll be back with Michael Cunningham after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters, and that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material, with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either, and it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. 
I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is novelist Michael Cunningham, author of the novels A Home at the End of the World, Flesh and Blood, Specimen Days, By Nightfall, and The Snow Queen, as well as the collection A Wild Swan and Other Tales, and the nonfiction book Land's End, A Walk in Provincetown. His novel The Hours was a New York Times bestseller and the winner of both the Penn Faulkner Award and the Pulitzer Prize. He lives in New York City and is a senior lecturer at Yale University. His new novel is called Day and takes place on the same day in 2019, 2020, and 2021 during the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The novel centers on one family, husband and wife, Isabel and Dan, their two children, Nathan and Violet, and Isabel's brother, Robbie, who lives with them in their Brooklyn brownstone. Isabel and Dan are drifting apart while Robbie is very close to both of them, but his own life is in disarray. Robbie has recently broken up with his boyfriend and must move out of the house as COVID worsens and the family needs more space. In lockdown, Isabel and Dan's relationship worsens. Their daughter, Violet, is terrified of the world. Nathan is trying to maintain friends and some semblance of normalcy. And Robbie has gone to Iceland and spends his time posting on a fake Instagram account. We began the discussion with Michael Cunningham sharing what was consuming his mind before he got to the page to write Day. What I was thinking about with this particular novel, um, this would be every living person in the world, along with me, was the pandemic. And what I was specifically thinking about was, on one hand, how do you, how does anybody write a contemporary novel that acts as if the pandemic wasn't happening. This is three years ago, by the way. So it's it's at what was then its height. And at the same time, how does one, how does anybody write a novel that isn't just overwhelmed by the pandemic, that isn't about the pandemic? Because novels, as I see them, are about human beings. Um, so, yeah, I felt a little bit like, ooh, I don't know, setting a novel in during World War II in London and not mentioning the Blitz. But and this is unusual for me. These are extremely unusual times. My my first thought in, I actually discarded a novel that was halfway done once the pandemic rolled in. And the 2016 elections t- took place and started 
over. Um, and day now finally finished is my attempt to account for how our lives, how some lives, some of our lives, you can only ever write about some people's lives, are um, were altered by the pandemic um, without giving short shrift to our lives, which we lived through the pandemic. And now in the, I guess I'll call it the aftermath with all due respect to the people who are still suffering from it. It's a novel that you threw away, something that you think you might have thrown away anyway, or did you just change so much as a person because of the pandemic that you couldn't deal? You know, that is a good question for someone like me, because I am always on the verge of throwing every novel away. But but I've learned over time that, yeah, sure, get about to the halfway point, realize it's not working out, throw it away, start another one. You're going to get right back there again. So you might as well try to finish this one. Um, so, no, I would have finished that novel, and I might still go back and finish that novel. But you know, suffice to say that suddenly here was the pandemic, um, and I couldn't see a way to incorporate it into the novel I was halfway through, and I couldn't, nor could I. Anyway, um, that's why I kind of put that one away, and we'll see if it comes back or not. Do you think that you have a tendency to get to get to a point in novels and want to throw them away because the middles are so hard? I do. Uh, middles, yeah, middles are hard. But, you know, for me, it's more like this. Um, I will get somewhere near the middle. Um, ergo, the point at which the novel has begun to assume its its shape. It's begun to be, it's, it's by that point, it is this and not that. Um, and for me, that seems always to involve a certain sense of panic because I feel the novel closing in around me. Um, I feel the novel's the discrepancy between the novel I'm writing and that impossibly great novel that I and probably no one could write because it not only uses language to its ultimate levels, it transcends language. It it, it includes whale songs and the movements of the of the constellations and and pure feeling that rises up off the you know that like those kind of that kind of unreal unreasonable expectation um and i actually have to get through that i have actually have to find a way to reconcile myself to the fact that it is this book um it 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 contains what it contains but it entirely omits the crimean war and interstellar travel, not to mention whale songs and the movements of the constellations. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing about writing in particular is that before you put the words on the page, 
it, it's endless. It's like the universe. There's no end point. But the more you write, the more you constrict the story. And that can be really scary because then you've created boundaries in your world. Right, right, right. I have to add what also happens at that point, um, which I have learned to survive, is it also means that the novel is, um, even though it really is not going to include the Crimean War or the movements of the constellations, um, it's also sort of outgrowing whatever little idea led you into it and becoming something else. As Flannery O'Connor once said, how can there be surprises for the reader if there haven't been any for the writer? So what you are doing at that point, what I'm doing, I can't speak for other writers, of course, uh, is sort of negotiating my own entry into the into a particular realm of surprise and uncertainty. And if you are fond of control, as some of us are, it's a difficult transition to make. Yeah, I had a writing teacher once that said, you know, you should start your story or your novel with a big question that you can't really answer. But if you've answered it along the way, you have to ask another question. Yeah, yeah, that's good advice. And some of it is like, oh, I can't think of another question anymore. One of my favorite lines about writing a poem, and I I think you could stretch this to include fiction as well, was um, W.S. Merwin, who said, write a poem, write the best poem you can write, work on it and work on it and work on it until you're finished, and then understand that this poem's last line is the opening line of the poem you're actually meant to write. Thank you, W.S. Merwin. Do you think that by structuring this into three parts, um, which I know you also did with the hours, helps mitigate some of that middle inertia? It's true. It's another novel out of, I don't know, seven or eight that is divided into three parts. Yeah, I think for me, it's more about the number three, which does have a way of coming up from the holy trinity to people who believe in that kind of thing to three acts in a play and one of the things i'm there's all kinds of things in physics about three that i i that only a nerd like me could want to talk about for 20 minutes but um here's the thing about three one is one is the loneliest number you want to write about one of anything um you take you take two entities. I'm now holding up two Sharpies. Um, and they can only exist in symmetry to one another. I could send this Sharpie to San Francisco and keep this Sharpie in New York. And you could still draw a straight line between the two of them. You add, these are my glasses, you add a third, and then suddenly the permutations and arrangements are infinite. Ergo, I love a three. So do you like braids better than pigtails? 
<laughs> I just, I, I, I just, I, I just think we should all let our hair grow, grow as wild and as long as we possibly can, and and, and resist any any temptations to to tame it into any configuration. It's interesting when you're talking about how three is interesting because I'll give a little description and please correct me if I I read the wrong book, but. You know, basically, uh, the story takes place on the same day over three different years, pre, during and post post pandemic of this family. And the matriarch and patriarch are Isabel and Dan and they're married. But, you know, and they probably know, especially Isabel fully knows that they're going to get divorced. And they have two kids, Violet and Nathan, who are five and ten when the book opens and we it's very domestic they're they're Isabel's brother Robbie who's gay lives with them and Isabel and Dan are both a little bit in love with him and he's in love with them and so there's like your triad within the family is between Robbie and Isabel and Dan and it's like a deep emotional love and he's helping take care of the kids, but they've asked him to move out because they need more room so he's searching for a new place he also has this like pseudo identity uh, uh, on Instagram, this guy Wolf that he creates this imaginary life for. And we're just seeing them in New York with all their domestic issues and the ways that they're dealing with living in a small apartment and losing this love of their life to another place that they just sort of had to leave him. Dan's uh, trying to make a comeback as a musician. Isabel is really contemplating if she wants to leave. And it's this really quiet story about this family. But yet inside, they're all sort of not feeling the quietude of what it means to be human and how you get along. Is that okay? Um, yes, that's, that's, that's not only okay. It's entirely, it's entirely true. Um, and I don't think this is much in the way of a spoiler it is in fact that one day in april uh divided into three parts morning afternoon and evening and morning which you just so adroitly described is you know a kind of regular ish day in the in the lives of people who are undergoing regular ish domestic traumas um and then afternoon takes place on the same date but a year later at the height of the pandemic and then evening same date another year later though when these same people some of them are living in i'm reluctant to call it the post-pandemic because out of respect for all the people who are still dealing with it and suffering terribly with it but evening takes place the year during the year we mostly stopped wearing masks if we were marrying them at all and 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 we were you know back to quote back to the new normal um and that structure was the only way i could come up with to as i was saying earlier incorporate incorporate you know acknowledge acknowledge the pandemic kind of the way japan had to acknowledge godzilla while honoring the lives of the people who started at one end and came out at the other. 
We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Do you feel like morning, afternoon, and evening holds a certain kind of energy for you in your days? Like, not even just as a writer, but like what you think of each time period? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Um, I, I I could ask that of almost everyone I know. Um, you know, because I my days are spent holed up in a sixth floor walk up studio with air shaft views, which I like. It's 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 not distracting. Um, but I come here in the mornings, and I'm here until sometimes mid to late afternoon. So that stretch of time from morning until late afternoon, early evening, for me, living as I do on what I'll call writer time, it's just sort of undifferentiated. It's it's it 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 it, it could be 10 a.m. It could be 3 p.m. And then the big shift is to evening and night. Um I love night. I have always been nocturnal. Um, And my husband and I do not leave. Well, our lives are glamorous and interesting to us, but I think not not especially to anybody else. Um, And we're mostly home. Sometimes we go out. Hey, hey, we're popular. Um, But we're mostly home. And he being extremely not nocturnal and having like a regular job that he has to get up for in the morning um he often goes to sleep a couple hours before i do and i then relocate to this sort of day bed in the living room and turn on the one lamp and then it's night and then it's just me in this little pool of lamplight in the darkness in the quiet that pervades where I live in Brooklyn after a certain hour. So it's it's a long way of answering a relatively simple question, which is for me, it's kind of like there's day and then there's night. Those are the two periods of the day. Well, I love that in the book it had to ratchet up in a certain way and then kind of open to different possibilities kind of in the middle of the day. And I mean, it's something I noticed when I was reading it in the morning as we're moving towards afternoon. So in the first part, I noticed that every ending, because it's, it's kind of like it's a mini book within your book, had this way of opening and looking off into the distance and to look at their characters' desires in the way that... I felt like some of these endings could have been endings to short stories. Um, Like one, if it's okay to say like one character was just dreaming of escape and wondering like who wouldn't want to load up the car and move on. And, and the daughter saw sort of like a dog in the distance and time and space was going towards her. And, and one character was like wondering if she did leave, like how would she change her names? I don't know if it's something that you were very conscious of, but when I read this, I was like writing notes furiously, like, look what he's doing at the end of these. You know, one of the things that I 
like about writing novels is the fact that some elements are intentional and others are intuitive. You're exactly right. Each each of the three sections opens up, opens out, and then sort of flies into the concrete, relative concreteness of the next section. Um, almost as if, in theory, they could be three different, very short novels. But I wasn't aware of that when I was writing it, and this is why. Although I think I like to think it can be informative in some ways to talk to the person who wrote the book. The person who wrote the book is often not the final authority on the book. That's why there are readers and academics and critics and all kinds of people who, on a semi-regular basis, sort of point out things in your own book that you, I think, must have been aware of unconsciously, but but we're not actually thinking about. It might be... Uh, instructive too for people who are listening who are writers that you know maybe there's something about making sure in the first third although I hate rules that you're opening something up and then in the middle which can be really the hardest you're finding ways like not in a bad way to like shut it down to limit the possibilities so you can move towards an ending that isn't necessarily prescriptive or final. You still maybe want an ending that opens up the story, but maybe for the characters, you're creating more limitations or something. I also hate rules, but I, you know, I, I teach writing and I always talk to my students at the beginning of the semester about how there aren't any rules, but there kind of are. Or rather, let's say there are storytelling principles that seem to have stood up more often than not. Please take whatever I say along these lines only as as that, as as something that has proven to be a reliable hypothesis. And we do we did this exercise just a couple of weeks ago. I haven't been writing exercises before they start writing full stories. Okay, write a page. An opening page that in some way or other makes it apparent to the reader that something important is going to happen. You know, whether whether the entire house is going to fall down or or we get the first intimations of a relationship about to go bad. But but remember, students and writers everywhere that no one really wants to read what you write. You know, there's too much out there already. Um, And you really need to make it apparent early on that this is going to be worthy of your attention, you hope. Um, So yeah, get to it and and then keep it alive. I think part of the problem with middles is um, it's, too easy if you are a new writer or an old writer it's too easy to sort of think of the middle as 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 the part of the uh, the part of the story that, that keeps the beginning from colliding with the end and you want to remember that narrative like life is 
full of surprises and you want to think about some kind, something needs to happen in the middle that turns things around. And this is where the professor kind of says, you know, I don't know, I don't know how you do that exactly, but do it. Um, remember that every, every section of any story is a living thing and treated as such. And don't, because if your if your attention starts to waver, if you start to feel, oh, no, I already know this. Trust me, the reader will. What you did a lot in your middle, which is I think in sync with the pandemic, is you had a lot of emails, a lot of letters, Wolf's posts on Instagram. You know, Robbie ends up going to Iceland because that's what one does, and he is, you know, really one of the ways that Isabella's sister really connects with him is only through any posts he has on Instagram and letters they're writing, but not receiving from each other. So you have a lot of borrowed form in the middle, which is, you know, both showing like the claustrophobia, like she's writing letters to someone in the same house as her, because it's really difficult when you're just so entrenched with each other. During the pandemic, we had to be more thoughtful. We were more isolated. And so it shows that isolation in a way as well. This is a really good chance for me to give proper credit to my brilliant editor, Andy Ward at Penguin Random House. Um, because the in the draft I showed Andy, that middle section was entirely texts and emails and letters and andy sort of cracked the whip and said technically sure isolation and everything but we lose we lose the emotion it it, it go it goes blank if you, if it's if all if, if the entire middle section haha here's middles again is just people texting and emailing each other and i went back and although it is full, more full of texts and emails and letters than than most sections of most novels i also added narrative um in order to keep it from going sort of flat and i i'm 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 especially glad to be able to acknowledge andy um and i also had enormous help from my agent um francis kobe because um if you are lucky enough to survive to the end of writing a novel you the writer get whatever attention you get you get to be on cool podcasts like this and your editor doesn't and your agent doesn't um and i just cannot overemphasize certainly for me how much difference those people have made in the very essence of the book we're talking about now. I wanted to ask you about the relationship between Robbie and Isabel and Dan. In the very beginning, you say Robbie's in love with Isabel and Dan or the singular creature they've become. So they're kind of like an amoebic thing, but it's also um, the way in which Dan and Isabel love Robbie, you know, for, for Dan, in some ways, Robbie's the love of his life more than his wife. And what, what interested you about this? 
Well, you know, I'm always interested in doomed love. I mean, hey, who isn't? You know, and and I guess I'm also maybe especially interested in the various forms of love that are not, that don't fit the sort of, uh, what, how to put this, traditional romantic formula, you know, star-crossed lovers, will, will they, will they overcome circumstance and be together? And there's nothing wrong with those stories. There's a lot of them, but, but I'm, certainly as a gay man, I, I, well, I don't think gay men have a, have, any kind of exclusive on this, but 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 I'm very much aware of really powerful loves that don't quite look like Tristan and Isolde or or Romeo and Juliet. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. Oh God, I hope there's not a line quite this blatant in the novel, but but I always I always think in terms of just the just the like, as plainly stated as possible what's really going on here. And with these people in this book, although there's nothing sexual between Robbie and his sister or Robbie and Dan, they are threesome and and nothing is quite going to work for any possible pairing of them. I think what's interesting about your writing is that you find ways to articulate these emotional truths, but you also are asking some work from the from the reader of the subtext of of the plot like there's things that you don't really name that the reader can put together does that make sense to you like there's there's some covid spread in there that where you never exactly say what happened but the reader can figure it out whereas emotionally you're sharing more of the depth of the character's in language that's very beautiful, which in some ways makes me, that's what sometimes makes a beautiful book is if you can name the things that are hard to name, but you don't name the things that are more obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for one thing, I am writing for readers who are at least as smart as I am. And, and if anything smarter than I am, I trust them. I believe in their abilities to put things together. And yeah, yeah, a lot of the exposition, if you will, and most of what I write is left a little bit to the readers, not just imagination, but creativity. I mean, this quote does not originate with me, but I cannot remember who said it. First, first, the writer writes the book, and then the reader writes the book. There was probably somebody French who said that. But anyway, um, you know, you realize that you are, I certainly realize that I'm, what I'm offering readers is a kind of, a kind of blueprint for the book they want to read. And no two people read exactly the same book. And I think it was, it's been, it was especially true in day because I didn't want, uh, on one hand, I wanted the personal to remain dominant. It, it's, it, it, it still matters that your marriage is falling apart, even, even in the middle of a pandemic, maybe even more so. But I, I let a lot of the sort of day-to-day stuff happen off the pages because I just felt like in the, in the middle of an event this enormous, we don't really need to know who's trying to do the dishes. We can figure that out. So I want to share my I think probably my favorite 
lines from the book and see if you remember writing it and then talk about kind of what it means. But uh, you write, it's in the first section. It's And you're talking about Isabel and she's like not, you know, content with her life and figuring out how to leave Dan and be a mother and love her brother. And you say, it can seem... Um, Isabel wants something bigger, something else, something less usual, something commensurate with her own capacity to want that which hovers at the far end of the visible range. Do you remember writing that? I do. I do. I don't always remember writing everything, but I do remember writing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think this is probably evident. I mostly maybe even always tend to write about tend to be drawn to people who not only want more than they've got and you know i i i i don't for the most part mean more money a bigger house but but more powerful connection to other people I won't go on about that, but um, yeah, I feel like that sort of ineffable desire, that 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 sense that even if you have been wildly fortunate, all the people in this book are wildly fortunate when you consider what's going on for almost everybody in the world. But um, that human capacity to long for a bigger life, a more complete life, um, not necessarily a happier life, is just a part of the human condition that is especially interesting for me with all due respect to all the people, and I know they're out there, who are perfectly happy with what they've got. They just don't seem to find their way into my novels. Yeah, I mean, as someone who often feels that, it it can be a torturous way to live, but I guess it keeps you feeling alive i think it does i think it does i mean i i I think desire is an integral part of our sense of aliveness and um might be a slightly funny thing to say but you know much of my life and ever more so as i get older i have been thinking about what what will it be like when I'm very, very old? Will I regret? Will I wonder why I did or why I didn't? And I have sort of come to the conclusion that for me, that which you desired but didn't get might very well be one of the comforts in your old age. You know, the desire itself is a force, not just a frustration, not just a denial, but you know, maybe if one is fortunate enough to grow very old, maybe one of the things that you remember as long is, oh, remember how much I wanted that. I know in some ways I wonder if there's something holy about it. Mm-hmm. Something holy? Yeah. Oh, I think so. I guess I would say doing a quick a quick, quick mental survey that every religion I can think of with the notable exception of Buddhism, is about desire to transcend. Uh, um, oh, I, I know people will correct me on this, but offhand, Buddhism is the only sort of 
of holiness, if you will, that is actually about negating and defeating and overcoming your desire. Um, I was I was raised Christian. I'm not especially religious anymore, but but we the Episcopalians just wanted and wanted and wanted and wanted and wanted and wanted and wanted. Yeah, imagine waking up in the morning and thinking, mm, I don't want anything. I think my only last thing about the novel maybe was just be like Robbie. He went off to Iceland and had this Instagram pseudo self. Right. And what, what was interesting to you about that? One of the things that is really interesting to me about the internet, possibly especially true of Instagram, I'm a huge fan of Instagram, is the notion that although I I think most people don't do this. You could create a sort of avatar online. You can literally, and this is what this is what Robbie does. I don't recommend this, but um, what he does as as his life is going through a sort of frustrating and loveless period, produce a version of himself. This invented entity named Wolf, who is not some kind of superhero, not some kind of super stud, but I don't think Robbie is entirely conscious of this. It, he is a Robbie for whom things are working out better, who loves his work, who just sort of has the um, loves his friend. Robbie doesn't love that one of his friends. Who is Robbie's sort of projection of his of his parallel, slightly more attractive, slightly more content self? He creates himself, but with the lights a little brighter and the volume turned up a little bit. Was it hard um, writing about kids, getting the right, appropriate age thoughts and movements for them? Uh, yeah, it is hard to write about kids for all kinds of reasons, in, in, including the fact that, well, for one thing, as I think most of us know, every child is already a a full person, although still in nascent form, um, this seven-year-old may bear almost no resemblance to that seven-year-old. And yet, 99% of the time, there is a real difference between a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. Um, and you just have to sort of find your way with them as human beings who live within this particular sphere of development um, that is not so true of, say, a 25-year-old versus a 28-year-old. Um, and I have friends who have three children, and they... I will always love them for this, among the many other reasons I love them. They actually recorded conversations they had with their children to give me a sense of 
and the, the characters are not based on these people's children at all. But but you know what I mean? To, to give me a sense of the cadence of what they talked about, what mattered to them, what didn't matter to them. Um, um, yeah, and that was really helpful. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to your influence to you as a writer? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I, I, I've thought about this. I'm going to read a short passage from Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. Um, not only because it's a great book, but because of all the great books, this one happens to have mattered to me personally more than just about any other book. I, I, just, I read it early. I mean, it was sort of like my first kiss, if you will. But I think Virginia Woolf would be livid if, if, she, if she were to learn that I was calling her my first kiss. Sorry, Virginia. This is early in the novel, Mrs. Dalloway. Having lived in Westminster, how many years now? Over 20. One feels even in the midst of the traffic or waking at night. Clarissa was positive a particular hush or solemnity, an indescribable pause, a suspense, but that might be her heart, effective, as they said, by influenza, before Big Ben strikes. There, how it bloomed. First a warning, musical, in the hour irrevocable. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Such fools we are, she thought, crossing Victoria Street. For heaven only knows why one loves it so. How one sees it so. Making it up. Building it round one. Tumbling it. Creating it every moment afresh. But the various frumps, the most dejected of misery sitting on doorsteps, drink their downfall, do the same, can't be dealt with, she felt positive by acts of parliament. For that very reason, they love life. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Well, for, you know, for first, a, a very brief moment of silence, just, just for the brilliance of, of, of that, the kind of, one of the things I love about Wolf was, is to me that she occupies the precise point between lyricism and accuracy, um, which is a difficult point to, to arrive at and a very difficult point at which to reside. Um, and, you know, we were talking just a little while ago about sort of opening a narrative and, and, and letting readers know have some sense of the story to come, even though you will surprise them or shock them as the story unfolds. Um, I think it's also important to locate readers to because you're literally leading someone into a pitch black room. And I, as a reader, really want to know where I am. And that passage, which is maybe like two pages in, puts you right there. 
and and all to the point where it almost telescopes time. It's 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 London in the twenties, but you're right there. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard, or changed a lot from the first draft, or something you like. I have to say, at, at, at this point in particular, it's hard for me to like any of it because, you know, you know, you, you spent years working on it, and and oh, I won't go on about that, but um. You know, I did pick out a passage. It's actually the opening of of my own novel, um, because it was so influenced by by Wolf, um, and I am appropriately unsure about reading something of mine in the wake of something of hers. Um, but I'm going to do it because um, you know, for me. One of the things that is most difficult about writing in general, and especially certain passages, is my sense not only of Virginia Woolf, but of Henry James and James Joyce, and the list goes on and on and on of people who have already done this so remarkably. Um, and I really have to do what I do and do my best to silence that little voice in the back of my head that says, yeah, right, but it's not Virginia Woolf. No, it's not. Um, so here is a passage of not Virginia Woolf. Um, this early, <clears throat> the East River takes on a thin layer of translucence, a bright, steely skin that appears to float over the river itself as the water turns from its nocturnal black to the opaque deep green of the approaching day. The lights on the Brooklyn Bridge go pale against the sky. A middle-aged man pulls up the metal shutter of his shoe repair shop. A young woman, ponytail, jogs past a young man who, wearing a little black dress and combat boots, is returning home. The occasional lit-up window is exactly as bright as a quarter moon. The shoe repairman turns on the blue neon sign that says Shoe Hospital and reactivates the three-foot-tall mannequin in the window, a sun-bleached fox, raccoon, that sits at a cobbler's bench, raising and lowering a miniature hammer, which, now that the man has switched it on again, now that the shoe hospital sign blazes gas blue and the animal has resumed its labors, will do as an announcement of the start of the day. Do you want to say anything else about that? Well, I've, I've already said more than anyone really needs to hear about, about not being Virginia Woolf. Um, no one is Virginia Woolf. You're only, you can only be yourself. But... Um, you know, I think all of us, or certainly all the writers I know, want to be original, but we're also just undeniably writing out of history, writing out of the books that we read. And we are, I think, on one hand, ourselves, just as we are not our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents, but we're also from them. And so, yeah, yeah, I just, I just thought to read two passages that that for me sort of reflect my by now clearly lifelong attempt to 
to both write as myself and to write as someone who was profoundly affected by another writer. Where do you write? I write in um, a studio in the West Village. As studios go, it's a little unprepossessing. It's a sixth floor walk-up. It has air shaft views. It's very small, but I really love it. Um, I have always tried to find some place other than home to write. It, 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 it helps me feel more like somebody with a real job. Get up, get dressed. Bye, honey. Off, off to work. And if I, if I find myself at the kitchen table at three in the afternoon, still in my underwear, I just, I just feel too insane. I, I, I feel too isolated. So yeah, I get up, I take the subway and come here. I can still get up six flights of stairs until further notice. And, uh, and I'm here. This is where the work happens. And when I'm not here, I'm also off the hook. I might want to still write, but I don't have to anymore, which keeps my life more bearable. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, really, more than anything, I just go out into the city of New York. You know, I go to movies and do things that anybody does. But for me, the big thing is leaving the studio, going down all six flights, having spent the day entirely alone. I mean, I mean, where I the studio is not only just me. It's 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 almost soundproof and 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 trust me when i tell you there's no there's there's no view of anything but another brick wall out out the window and um it really matters to me to walk out into all that life for every reason from just the sense of excitement oh yeah all these people and you know one of the things i love about new york is that you can't really walk the streets of most of New York for five or maybe 10 minutes and imagine that you are in any way a typical member of the human species. Um, it's always reminding you of, of, of the outward otherness of others. And it's also kind of important for me to go out and be reminded that, yeah, fiction matters, poetry matters, literature matters. But so do a lot of other things. And it helps keep me keep things a little bit in perspective, which helps me a little bit from getting any crazier than I already am. Um, and I just need to live in a city for that reason. If I finished a day of solitary work and then went for a walk on an empty beach, I would go nuts. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband, Ken Corbett, who, um, along with his many attributes, is a really brilliant and incisive reader. Um, and he's not too hard on what I show him, but he's by no means too easy on it. And I trust him. I believe him, and he is 
And that's something really surprising should happen. We've been together for like 37 years. And and so I know I can keep showing him things and he's not going anywhere. Um, and really, really, really. And then I and then I rely on other people as well. But without Kenny, I don't know how I would do this. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, you know, not very well. <laughs> um, and I don't know, maybe maybe this will be good for any any aspiring writers who might be listening. Um, it took me years and years to really publish anything. Um, and I just kept getting the stories back and back and back um, up to the point at which, oh, I don't know, I was probably pushing 30 when I thought, it's really too late for a career in pro ball or on the concert stage, but there are still other career options. Do I do I want to do I want to sort of give in on this one because nothing is nothing keeps happening, and I decided not to. And I guess for me the takeaway is if you God no you don't have to embrace rejection, but if, if you if you can't take rejection, this is just not a, an endeavor for you. That it, it finally gets down to that. I suppose some people are very, very lucky about it. But most of us have continued to do it in the face of of a lot of no, 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 no. And what is your favorite word? Let's see. Oh, as much for the sound of them as for their meaning. But I have to. Yeah, it's a tie. Um, I would say transcendent and ludicrous which have a funny sort of oral relationship, even though they mean very different things. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your book with me. And I really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me. If you like today's show with Michael Cunningham, author of The Novel Day, check out my previous interview with him on his novel, The Snow Queen. We talked about bad writing days, the precision of language, and accepting the novel you have written. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, David James Duncan, and Antoine Wilson. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.